0: Hey, this is Eugene Rapkin, and you're listening to the Style Zeitgeist podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Eugene, and I'm here with the author W. David Marks, and we're here to discuss his new book called Status and Culture, How Our Desire for Social Rank Creates Taste, Identity, Art, Fashion, and Constant Change. Um, and I can hardly think of a more like comprehensive <laughs> grand theory title for the book. Um, so welcome, David. Thanks for having me, Eugene. It's good to see you. Yeah, good to see you as well. I will, so your previous book uh, was called Amatora, um, How Japan Saved American Style, if I remember correctly, the subtitle. Yep. Um, and it was a very specific book for sort of menswear nerds, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I certainly nerded out on, and I know quite a few others have. Um, and this book is very different from your previous book. And I should also add, you know, to introduce you to the audience that you've also written for various publications. Uh, On style, mostly on uh, on fashion, and that you live in Tokyo, which I can't wait to go back to.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's tourists. Tourists are coming back right now, but it's not too terrible yet. So.
0: I know, I know. I can't wait. I'm like, my Instagram feed is like blowing up from all the people who are in Tokyo right now and making me feel very jealous uh, of their status, which is probably, you know, <laughs> a, good, a good way to, to get into it. Because I'm sure we're going to get to Instagram inevitably because I can't think of a more... Uh, sort of up, it's really become sort of a central status driver, um, mm-hmm. but I know we're going to get into this for sure. So first I want to set up the book. You know, I, I would like you to introduce our audience to the book. How did the book come about? What it's about in your own words? What were the questions you were trying to answer? And how did those questions come up in the first place?
1: Yes. So for a long time, I've been thinking about what are the principles behind cultural change? And we tend to either think about culture as a really irrational part of human nature. It doesn't make any sense. Hairstyles change for no reason. Um, Or we kind of attribute the cultural changes to uh, reactions to society. So uh, during the Great Depression, people feel economic uncertainty and therefore their pants go up three inches or whatever. You know, there's, some, there's always these ridiculous theories that tie stylistic innovation to, you know, some sort of reaction to society and, and economy. Uh, and when you start looking at cultural change over the eras, uh, what you notice is that there are certain patterns where things are always changing in the same ways. So they usually start with a small group of people and spread from there. Um, as they change, the the cultural innovation itself starts getting more simplified. Et cetera, etc. Cetera. And so what I hoped to do originally was to look at, you know, how does culture work? Why is it that the interaction between two people around these seemingly arbitrary parts of life uh, end up creating these macro patterns and you know change in the way they do? And as I was looking into that, I kept coming back to status as one of the main uh, factors of why why culture changes. And a lot of this goes back to a, a German, Jewish, uh, sociologist named Georg Zimmel from around the turn of the century, uh, more than hundred years ago, who has a really great essay on fashion, which more or less, he says that people want to be both, uh, imitative and they want to distinguish themselves. And then if you add that to the class mechanisms of, uh, everybody looking to the class above them for style ideas that, and, and, you know, looking beneath you for what you have to separate yourself from, then more or less you can explain fashion because the people at the top will do something new, then the, their, status position imbues that new thing with cachet which makes it attractive to the group below and it, it you know if they follow and then this pattern continues forever because once imitated that new style becomes tainted by the the lower groups so that that's an old idea and you know as i was just looking at the way things work status kept popping up and so i this was i guess 2 or 3 years ago uh decided just to put together something really quickly on status as far as I could tell, uh, you know, how how it worked, because there wasn't a particularly good book that just explained the principles of status, and uh, in putting the book together, it just made much more sense that it was a book that was about status and how that explained culture, and sort of rewrote it from that perspective. I think since that time, a couple of good books have come out about status, and so it's a little less of a foreign topic than I thought it was at at the very beginning, but... Uh, you know, my point of this is more or less the culture can seem mysterious if we don't look at status. And if once you look at status, a lot of these things like taste and fashion make much more sense. And it's only because of this general taboo, especially in Western societies of looking at status that we are not experts in it. And, and, you know, if, if people really hate my book, uh, but they take away from it, understanding how status works. I think that's great just because every single person should understand these basic principles of social interaction and how they manifest in society.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, This, this taboo on status, I find interesting and historically a fairly recent invention, right? And, Because in pre-revolutionary times, it was all about status, right? It's like when you say in your book, status was ascribed. Um, And everyone in society knew exactly where they were on this sort of status pole. Um, In post-revolutionary times, uh, even though status (laughs) remains alive and well, it, feel, it feels to me still like the idea that that's taboo that surrounds discussing status, this discussing status actually comes from above, from the ruling class who decided to change the mythology and change the narrative and make themselves invisible you know, in order to continue their lives unmolested uh, by the lower classes. That seems to me where this sort of taboo on discussing status come, comes out of, especially in America.
1: It, it's most certainly prevalent in democratic societies in which there is, are not supposed to be divisions, that, all, you know, all men are created equal. Now, obviously, that that's a that doesn't explain the outcome differences of people, but we are supposed to believe that it's meritocratic who moves up. Right. Um, So if you have status, it's because you've made these great contributions to society. And so, you know, it is status to talk about, sorry, it is taboo to talk about status. Uh, It is taboo to seek status. And that is because again, status is supposed to be rewarded Because of your contribution, so if you're seeking status as the outcome, uh, it's the same way saying I want money, but I don't really care how I make the money. So if you just say I want status, and you're trying to get status without making contributions, that upsets what is called status integrity in the sense of you know every group has a hierarchy and that hierarchy is supposed to be set by who is making the greatest contributions so once you do anything that reveals the hierarchy as hackable is not just something that you get as reward but you can get status in its own right that upsets people because they only bought into this hierarchy in the first place. Cause they thought it was fair. So there's a sense of fairness as well. So I think the taboo is definitely convenient to people at the top, but you know, as with any system of power, you have to understand why people in the middle accept it. And so I mm-hmm. think you get both horizontal pressure for people saying, "Hey, don't talk about status seeking. Don't try to look like you're trying to one up me because we're the same and we should have the same outcomes. Um, and then also people at the top being completely fine with not talking about status because it doesn't put a spotlight on why there are so many inequities and they're they're up there and they may not have deserved it.
0: Right, exactly. Because this this myth and I think Alan Debbotton talked about it, whom you also quoted the end of your book. Uh, you know, th- this myth of meritocracy we have all bought into also has a pernicious side because mm-hmm. it implies if those who are at the top gain came there through meritocracy that means they deserved it but conversely it also means that people at the bottom also deserved it
1: right or i mean it means yeah they deserved having low status because it's up to you and so there does seem to be some you know research or at least anecdotal ideas that people are more miserable and in democratic societies. By, because of the status anxiety, because it's more or less up to you to fix your own status problems. Where if you were born in a society that is saying you're a farmer and therefore you're third out of five castes, you're pretty much set there. And maybe that's pretty good. It's at least you're better than you know cast four, or cast five. So um, yeah, I think he, he he did a good point. That that's a book called Status Anxiety that came out I think about twenty years ago, um, mm-hmm. looking at the degree to which status anxiety is a universal feeling and that so many political and artistic movements are, are trying to be, uh, anecdotes to it, uh, anecdotes to, you know, that status anxiety. Uh, I, I, I enjoy that book. The reason I felt like I still needed to write something else was because, he doesn't quite get into the specific mechanisms of human interaction. He's just like, yeah, status is good. everyone wants it okay, moving on. Uh, but I, I was more interested in like what specifically is it about status that makes people want it and how does it uh, you know manifest in our cultural behavior, not just political philosophy?
0: Yeah. And people want status because it bestows benefits on them, right like with, with, is that the most basic? Idea.
1: I think that's the basic, you know, explanation. And, you know, there's a there's a couple other books on status and and there's some work in evolutionary psychology. And a lot of these people who are obsessed with evolutionary psychology look at animals and say, hey, animals have these dominance hierarchies. That's basically status. And humans must have some sort of DNA uh, inclination to form status hierarchies. The professor, Cecilia Ridgway at uh, at Stanford, um, she... He has kind of shown how hierarchies form naturally as problem solving; um, they're they're rational and logical. So I don't really think you need this animalistic explanation of of this part of human behavior. And it's also really important to understand that status is based on esteem; that you're treating somebody well because you respect them and and want to give them something for their contributions. Animals don't really have this. Animals have you know just power dominance hierarchy so you know comparing the two seems a little silly but you know if you look at it you know human beings they organize into groups these groups have tasks some people are going to make more contributions to those tasks than others so if you're out in the wild and you have to kill animals to eat or forage for food the people who are best at this are going to get um you know they're going to bring back more. The group wants to encourage them to continue providing their talents to this task so that maybe they get a little bit more of the food. So now you have some sort of difference in benefits and treatment, and then that's where the status hierarchy is born. So if you move up and you're uh, understood to be more important to the group you get all these benefits that start with just you know being treated well and maybe more of the spoils but then as you move to the top the people at the very top can even break the norms so you know the group has certain cultural norms but if you get to the very top you can break them and get away with it Um, people you know treat you like a god you mm-hmm. get Incredible access to special things that other people don't. So, you know, if you place any single person in these groups, and and let's say they're born without a status instinct, there's nothing about them that's set up for this, and they just look around and you say, "Would do you want to be this special person, or do you want to be this normal person?" Just rationally, you would want to be the special person because the benefits that you get from it are so much higher. So, uh, the the thing to understand about status is yes, there's a fundamental human desire for it, but it's just because it makes our lives better. And then what we have not talked about is having low status absolutely makes your life worse. And there's a lot of... Uh, scientific research on the degree to which people have more health problems the more they fall down the ranking so you know Mm -hmm. you you're worried about moving down you get all these benefits from moving up and it just has this directionality on human behavior where we look above us for aspiration and desire and social mobility um now i do i do think there's a variability in how much people do want to move up so there's some places where mm-hmm. if the baseline is pretty good and you have normal status in that group there's not necessarily this pressure on yourself to move forward but in most in most situations people if they can move up they will and it's just a question of how difficult it is to move up or whether they'll be punished for trying to move up without really making the contributions to justify it mm-hmm.
0: yeah and uh, so You know, we we know how primitive societies work, but your book is about sort of advanced society, civilization, and culture is the cornerstone of that. So how does culture affect status and what what is culture as well? Because, uh, you know, in your book, it's there are various things, right? There, There are, you know, material goods. Right. There are tangible things and there are intangible things that form culture uh, and the way it influenced status. So can you talk about, you know, how, you know, what do you mean by culture? So we all have work with the same definition and also how it affects status.
1: Yes. And Just it's also question. worth mentioning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um So it's worth mentioning in my book that I, try very hard to define all these words very crisply and in relation to each other. So one of the most frustrating things if you've ever tried to study culture is that no one has a, a standard definition. Right. There, it's, it's famous as one of the words with the most definitions that nobody can quite nail it down. And you know, one problem is just, it's just used in different ways. And so mm-hmm. <clears throat> there's a book called Cultural Rules, which is about Netflix's you know corporate culture. And that's a very different thing than Right. I'm reading rap capital by Joe Coscarelli, which is about you know Atlanta rap music that's that has mm-hmm. to also be a definition of culture, but these are different things. so uh so defining culture is almost an impossible task. and in thinking about it, what I settled on, uh, which is somewhat of it's not a particularly bizarre definition, but a new maybe a new one, which is that culture comes down to this idea of conventions. And a convention is the atomic form of culture. And so a convention is where within a group, uh, people have a mutual set of expectations on how the other person behaves. And you, out of all the arbitrary options you have of how to live your life, you gravitate towards certain ones because of these conventions. And if you break the convention, people will be upset. I mean, maybe they won't be that upset, or maybe they'll be extremely upset. But there is some sort of social force that comes out of uh, the fact that other people are happy when you meet expectations, and they're upset when you uh, don't meet expectations. But basically, conventions are these well-known mutual expectations about how things are. So if you think about, um, you know, the workplace has a convention that that it used to be that you had to wear a suit. So let's say in the 1960s and... You had to wear a suit to the office, that was the convention. If you showed up in jeans, you know maybe they would ask you to go home because you're breaking that convention. Can you do the job of jeans? Absolutely, it's just an arbitrary rule, but dress codes are this very clear set of conventions. Languages are all based on convention. Art is a set of conventions. So once you start looking at this idea of conventions, you start seeing it everywhere, and it's the thing that is universal across every definition of culture and also what i find use what i find most useful about it is that once you understand convention it can identify it and there there conventions are complicated because there can be a big grand convention so for example we believe in our society today that the individual is the uh, basis of society that it all comes down to individuals as the main unit. It used to be that society was about the church and God and the king and all these things. so that from that giant macro convention that's sometimes called paradigms, then you kind of go down and there's smaller levels of convention. so these mm-hmm. things aren't you know isolated units they're all connected but the the point of this is just if you have a convention of let's say turning up your uh cuff on your salvage genes. Like, that's a convention. You can then track it and say, where did that come from? Mm -hmm. And so what I like about this idea of thinking about culture as a set of conventions is that you can compare the conventions to understand different cultural practices. You can chart where they come from. And uh, that is really useful for thinking about the roots of cultural change. So that's what I mean by culture is that culture is a set of interlocking conventions. And when we talk about cultural change, we talk about the change of those conventions over time. Mm -hmm. So um, how does that involve status? So the way status plays a role in this first and foremost is that in general, human beings cluster and spend their time with people of equal status. So in a society, you have this hierarchy and you have people at the top all... Uh, socializing with other people at the top, people in the middle, socializing with people in the middle. And the more that groups uh, socialize with each other, they tend to break off into different uh, cultural behaviors. And then those become conventions within their groups. And within the group itself, if you were to break that convention, you would lose status. Uh, in order to, mm-hmm. you know, be a member of good standing, you have to follow these conventions. So status is one of the powers that keeps these conventions there in the first place, because, you know, it, it we have a very gendered convention in. Western society that men are supposed to wear pants and women wear dresses mm-hmm. it, but it doesn't make any sense right that's just arbitrary that in it should right. it could be that men one day wear pants on you know Monday they wear pants on Tuesday they wear uh, skirts it doesn't matter but the reason we don't do that is because there's that convention and the reason people don't break that convention is because there's some you know potential for status loss so Uh, You know, status keeps these conventions in place, but then also the conventions become symbolic of these tiers themselves. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there is a certain practice that becomes uh, associated with people with normal status. And then there's a practice that is associated with people in higher status with cars. That's obvious. So some cars are seen to be rich people cars. Some people, some are, are normal people cars. And so the other part of this is, you know, then cultural and desire for material objects and certain behaviors that we take on, uh our aspirations get looped, you know, get sucked mm-hmm. into uh what our status superiors are doing. And so from there, then it, it gets, you know, much more complicated and it's the rest of the book. But, you know, there is just a fundamental connection between status and the way that culture is formed in the first place, I think is the point I'd like to make. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, it all makes sense because I I, w- I was thinking uh, you know, when I was reading your book, I was obviously uh, well. First of all, the book made me feel uncomfortable, uh, which is always a good sign for me, because I started analyzing <laughs> my own uh, cultural practices. Yes. You know, in, including obviously the way I dress, which is of you know utmost interest to me. Uh, not just the way I dress, but the way everyone else dresses. Uh, and obviously the kind of uh, culture I am interested in, I'm really trying hard not to say the kind of culture I consume, which I guess is a status, a subtle status marker in itself. Um, <laughs> but it really made me analyze myself. And I think this was one of the benefits of the book. Uh, and it also, you know, made me feel uncomfortable uh You know, like, did I have a Mercedes because it, it, like, it 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 really drives fantastically, and I love driving, or was it simply you know a status marker? And probably the answer is both, right? Usually the answer is both, you know, when you (laughs) think of uh, either or things. Uh, But as far as fashion goes, it really gave some great insights into how people dress. And you're totally right. Uh, through history, the way people dress, it really does seem there's a lot of arbitrariness to it. There are certain things that are less arbitrary, such as functionality, of course. Um, but but a lot of it does seem arbitrary. Um, and. Of course, you know very well when during periods of in our history when status was ascribed, we also had laws that ascribed as to mm-hmm. how people of certain classes should dress. Um, we no longer have that, right? So, what I find fascinating, which I think you also find fascinating, is since there are no laws, uh, Everything becomes more subtle, but it's still there. You know, so so mm-hmm. you, you go into a bit of detail about how old money dresses, how new money dresses, how sort of the bourgeoisie dresses, um, and so on. And I found that really fascinating. And the con, and you write that context changes all the time. You know, like I. Uh, in the way I dress, I've I've always not always, but uh, for the past say twenty years, I've always thought of it as a bit of a countercultural statement, right? In in, in the way I dress, and I was always thinking, is you know, why do I hate mainstream culture? Because to me, it's it it was the conventions of the bourgeoisie, right? Which is sort of the predominant conventions of our time. And those conventions came with a certain uh, morality, which I also Mm -hmm. hated and continue to hate and other values, you know, Mm -hmm. such as conformity, uh, Uh, such as the desire to remake the world in its own image, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so this sort of what started as a teenage rage (laughs) and teenage angst, uh, which you may be familiar with, you know, against these conventions that surround me, uh, morphed into my sartorial preferences that, to me, uh, give an external symbolism of how I feel on the inside. Um, and what is interesting to me also that I, I would like to ask you is that, you know, you say in the book that status is bestowed by others, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and But there's a, di- there's a distinction also between status groups. And what I would like you to speak to a bit is, um, I am still signaling, right, when I, when I dress, but I wonder, and I, and, and like, I think it's also important who you signal to, you know, and and I guess that's where status comes in, you know, there's, because you talk about normal status, right, but you also talk about subcultures, um, and part of the way we dress is also signaling to, as you hope, uh, like-minded individuals, uh, which is increasingly hard to do, right? Because to take the most obvious examples, and I know my listeners are gonna kill me because I keep bringing it up again and again and again. Uh, today, uh, if someone wears a band t-shirt, it is no longer a guarantee. that they're a fan of the music. Um, So I guess this was a very long-winded way of me asking you, uh, you know, how do we signal with fashion? Whom do we signal to? And uh, uh, and can we, you know, do we still, and how, how the semiotics work in the post this postmodern culture, where like everything is so scrambled,
1: right? And we have to first start with you know how does semiotics work in the old model uh, to understand kind of how it's changed. But you know signaling comes out of the fact that no one gives you status for free, especially for uh, strangers. They don't know what your status level is, so you have to use some sort of indication. Uh, there needs to be some sort of signal. That says, hey, I'm part of this higher status group, or I'm part of this group or not that group. And some of that is natural, which is just if you live in a certain way, you exude these these um, you know, signifiers. And, you know, that's called in the academic literature cues, like the cues about you. Um, so you know, your, the size of your body and and the way you walk, things like that that are a little less under control can still be cues to your social position. And then signals are the things that you control. So I'm going to dress in a certain way because I want to say this about myself. Now, what's interesting is uh, if you're in the mainstream of society and the mainstream of our society is all about money, more or less, because it is intensely capitalist society, then all the values in that group become very much about if you have more money then you can move up. and so having a lot of money is a ticket upward and so the most obvious thing to do is to spend a lot of the money on signals that show that you're part of this um upper upper status world and move up. um now if you think it's disgusting that culture revolves around money, which many of us do, and especially in teenage years and come you know, you come to uh Society, and you ask a lot of questions of why exactly these horrible people are are status superiors. <laughs> yeah. Then, then maybe you um, you form a counterculture or you join a counterculture because these countercultures are status groups that are formed on the idea of different values. The saying we want to create a different world in which money is not the most important thing. So if you think about the hippie world in the late 60s, you know, they were a removal. It was a bunch of more or less upper middle class kids, college kids removing themselves from uh, mainstream society based on an ideology, not just saying like a lot of working class kids, um, in the 50s, let's say the Teddy Boys and the mods in the UK got some money, wanted to show that they were different. They were rejected by mainstream society, so they created their own world. And this is kind of where the idea of subculture comes from. But counterculture is when you have the same kind of thing happen, but there's an ideology at the core. There's some reason why we fundamentally believe that <clears throat> status beliefs in main society, mainstream society are wrong and ours are right. So then if you are signaling your allegiance with that group it's still signaling right like if you're dressing mm-hmm. in a certain way you're signaling sure. that I'm against that and I'm for this and you know you were saying how I feel inside and I, and I think that's quite interesting and one of the more obnoxious points I think I make in the book is you know people talk about how they dress as self-expression and mm-hmm. I don't really think it's expression in a really dis- like uh, specific meaning I think it's self-classification so mm-hmm. most of the things we do is to classify classify ourselves as I believe in these values or I'm with this group rather than expression which could be you know today I feel sad and therefore I'm wearing the color blue um I mean this this gets really pedantic and technical but in you know I think literary theory expression is much more about these like metaphorical systems and so they're not really metaphors as much as uh, allegiance to certain groups and I, I think about punk a lot because You know, you look at punk style and you say, well, obviously ripped up clothing and dog collars and all of these make sense as a rebellion against moneyed mainstream society. But you can rebel against moneyed mainstream society in all these different ways. You could wear black minimal. You could um, dress like factory workers. You know, you could do all these things in order to to remove yourself. But it moved in this very specific semiotic direction uh, because it also separated them from the other subcultural groups which is really important and they're mm-hmm. also really rich in you know exciting rebellious signifiers but there a lot of them were very parasitic on the mainstream culture which is that if you have a uh shirt that's torn up and you say look at me i'm wearing a shirt that's torn up that's only interesting if Everyone else is wearing shirts that aren't torn up. Mm-hmm. So, um, but the, the point about punk is that you can look at it and say, well, I'm, they're expressing some inner rage because the shirt is torn up, but you can express inner rage in all sorts of different ways. And then if you have a kid today who's wearing a mohawk because they're punk, well, it's like, that's, you know, we can make fun of that because it's so formulaic, but it is formulaic. I mean, it's, there's no rule on the history of the earth that if you're angry, you have to put your hair up in this very specific way. So, um, right. So, so I think there, signaling is really, really important for understanding subcultural and countercultural behavior as well. That no one's immune to it. It's just simply that you're signaling your your allegiance to a different set of values. Uh, now things are really different now, and you know, I I really think Japan in particular has influenced uh, the way that postmodern culture has gone, or at least was the first to get there. So in postmodern culture the culture the cultural practices themselves become unrooted from some sort of underlying uh, social arrangements right so let's say you are into hardcore punk and you're going to hardcore punk shows and you're wearing you know t-shirts from the band it's because that's you know the t-shirt that you bought because you were at the venue and you're expressing your allegiance to this group and it makes perfect sense uh, at some point, you can wear the T-shirt as fashion, just as like it's kind of cute to wear mm-hmm. this T-shirt and not having to listen to the band. So both of these things are are, are options. For a long time if you wore a t-shirt from a band you didn't listen to and when I was a kid this was most definitely the case you were a poser or if you were wearing skateboarding clothing without being a skateboarder you were a poser so there was this real idea of authenticity that the clothing should reflect your actual lifestyle mm-hmm. and what was interesting about Japan is that all of these cult subcultures and countercultures were imported to Japan without the underlying social uh arrangement so you have all these hippies who weren't doing drugs and weren't really dropping out but they're uh, you know adopting the hippie fashion because it's introduced to them in fashion magazines and so uh, i remember in about 2003 or 4-ish there was an uh uh uh, issue of a japanese men's fashion magazine where it was like here are the cool new trends and it's banned t-shirts And, you know, the the one on the cover or the one in the top of the article was this Dinosaur Junior t-shirt that was the cover of Green Mind. (laughs) And, you know, it was funny to me because when I was a kid, I was into Dinosaur Junior and I had a Dinosaur Junior t-shirt that I was so proud of. And the older kids who were into Dinosaur Jr. hated me for wearing the shirt because it's not even like I wasn't listening to Dinosaur Jr. It was just that you're not cool and you're kind of, you know, you're ruining what a Dinosaur Jr. t-shirt means because you should be fully immersed in alternative culture. You should have uh, dyed, you know, hair and have a chain wallet and. Uh, you know, your Doc Martens and, and Chino pants are, are not cool. So, you know, I was, you know, excluded from that group, even though I listened to the band. And so now mm-hmm. Dinosaur Junior is just this, like, free-floating signifier of fashion in Japan 2003. And I would walk around and I would see people not just wear band t-shirts and not just wear Dinosaur Junior t-shirts, but only wear that specific shirt that was featured. So you would see kids in that exact Green Mind <laughs> shirt all the time. And... So in in Japan, because things were imported, you know, you lost the rootedness of the culture. And then I often thought of that as one of the differences between Western and Japanese fashion. But now what you're saying is correct, which is it's come to uh, the U.S. as well, which is people are just wearing these things without any sort of understanding of the underlying idea or, you know, even a feeling that they should have to care about Mm -hmm.
0: it. The entire world is Japan now, basically.
1: Yeah, I mean it's <laughs> close cool to that and I just wrote an afterward for Amatora where I said I think Japanese brands are here to stay because they kind of invented this mm-hmm. mode of fashion where it's derooted. Um and they're they're going to succeed in it because you know they they know it better than anyone. They they have had a 20 or 30 year head start on a world or maybe even more, maybe a 50-year head start on thinking about fashion as being completely unrelated to your cultural mm-hmm. affiliations. Mm-hmm. I,
0: I, I will come back to postmodernism because I think it's, uh, it's a very fascinating uh, topic to discuss, particularly uh, with respect to your book. And I, and I feel like your book sheds, well, sheds a particular light on postmodernism. But I want to... Uh, What I want to discuss first is, where do you see uh, the role of of fashion in bestowing cultural status in general? Um, And where do you see it uh, now in this particular moment, bestowing status in, in, in what way? How does it do it? Uh, through through which methods and through which and through which signifiers
1: so first you know we talked about culture being a very ambiguous term and I think fashion is also a pretty terrible ambiguous term and very ambiguous in the book, term
0: yes yeah and
1: I, I talk about it in the book in terms of fashion cycles because once you add the word cycle people know what you're talking about which is that popularity of things like dog breeds how you prepare coffee, the kind of pen you use, whether it's ink or water, uh, sorry, whether it's oil ink or, you know, uh, water-based ink, all these things are fashion in the sense that they move in these kind of cyclical ways. And, you know, more or less what I say in my book is that fashion cycles are cultural change of arbitrary parts of our lives that are powered by status. I I don't think there are very many things we could call fashion that don't have some sort of status element to Mm -hmm. them. Um, The difference would be technology. So technological change has a status component, but it can happen independent of status because, um, I don't know how it was uh, back in Probrusk, but, you know, uh, we had ice boxes in the United States, you know, 100 years ago instead of refrigerators. And the thing about the ice box was that it was not very good at what it did. You know, you put this big piece of ice in your in the box and it it kept the vegetables cool, but it melted and you had to have somebody come by every day and bring another block of ice. Uh whereas a refrigerator you just plug it in and you solve that problem. So we don't go back to ice boxes. There's no fashion trend for ice boxes because it's not arbitrary. Mm-hmm. So technology changes in a certain way and uh fashion changes based off of social value and that social value is mostly a status value and the reason that things can come back in is because the status value can be reassigned to things that fall out of the system and that's not true for technology in the same way um the vinyl vinyl is cool compared to mp3s because vinyl has some property that's uh, you know people believe is a positive functional one mm-hmm. it's not just that it's you know but it's it's also status i mean it just looks cooler to have sure. uh, turntables than than a you know a Zune player from 2007 or whatever so um so the main thing is that fashion is is a broader idea than clothing but clothing is is the most obvious vehicle for fashion because right. once clothing you know fulfills its most basic duty of make keeping you warm and and protecting and like you know covering up parts of your body then the sky's the limit and you can kind of do anything and we you know uh i forget who it is i think it's um uh, i can't find it quickly enough but uh there's an author who has a really good line which is that you study fashion to understand culture the same way you study fruit flies to understand genetics that Mm. you know fashion is the clearest field in which human beings are taking on these cultural behaviors that are completely arbitrary and you know 20 years 30 years later that looks silly because we've kind of woken up from whatever it is that was enticing Mm -hmm. us at the time so you know at the moment what's strange is you know i grew up in the 90s we didn't talk about fashion in terms of alternative uh, clothing. I think there was a lot of resentment towards Marc Jacobs for doing a grunge collection or whatever, because mm-hmm. grunge isn't fashion. It should be kind of separate from mm-hmm. it. It was an it definitely an anti-fashion most kids in America didn't think about fashion, even if they thought about T-shirts and, and sneakers. Uh, but those weren't even quite you know popular yet. I went to Japan for the first... I went to Tokyo for the first time in 1998. And that's where I discovered street fashion. And that, to me, was an on-ramp. Because it said, you can still wear T-shirts and jeans and sneakers, but they just have to be the right ones and made in limited quantities. And now you're fashionable. So that kind of brought me on... Uh, I wrote a senior thesis about the brand Bathing Ape and the marketing Mm -hmm. techniques that I published. It was published in 2001, not published, but I turned it in in 2001. Uh, And then, uh, you know, to my surprise in 2003, Pharrell brings... The bathing ape to New York and suddenly street fashion is exploding among the hip hop mm-hmm. community. Supreme was a story. I think until about that point, you could just walk in and buy a t-shirt and suddenly yeah. there's huge lines around the block. Um, so fashion has really exploded. It went from street fashion to then kind of preppy heritage, red wing kind of stuff. And now, you know, and I think a lot with kind of Kanye's influence was taken from street fashion to uh paris and went directly to high fashion high fashions responded to that wave of interest plus the rise of china by going towards becoming basically streetwear you know all these high yeah. brands that used to be elegance are now more or less just eleva- you know elevated streetwear mm-hmm. um so that has only made it easier for normal people to to put it into their wardrobes but i'm just i'm literally shocked all the time the degree to which an average American actually cares about these uh European brands because it used to be a Japan only thing in a sense of nobody you know no one wears a Louis Vuitton handbag who's middle class unless you're a Japanese woman and now you know these things are all obvious so Japan again was ahead of the curve here, but fashion is now you know universal in a sense that I wouldn't have expected it. I think the influence of hip hop is huge there. Uh, you know, just because it's on my mind, reading this book, Rap Capital, about Atlanta, yeah. you know, the you know the fact that Migos have the song Versace or something, you know, <laughs> like these high-end brands or, you know, um, rappers are putting these brands in their names and their songs mm-hmm. uh, in a way that they may not have 20 or 30 years ago. Um, so, I mean, the signifiers are the brand names, but, you know, the cost can't be uh i mean i think with a lot of that stuff it's very difficult to look at it and say it's about the taste right so like if sure. you were into come to garcon in the 80s it was because to understand and appreciate come to garcon required so much cultural capital you had to know mm-hmm. what it is you had to know the context you had to know who wore it how they wore it you had to know the concepts behind it it required study and you know uh, access to certain people who would tell you about why it's a great brand because if you're a normal person you look at it you just say why would you wear this right. like, sewn up burlap bag you know yeah. so you know it the thing that it did is it created a barrier between people who are in the know and who weren't and uh, that's what you know art has done for a long time so come to a Yoji and those brands were you know weirdly theoretical anti-fashion that, that attracted a certain group and uh, you had to know that I think when you look at how fashion is being signified now with you know Versace or, or um you know any any of these European brands, Gucci, you don't have to know anything. You just have to know mm-hmm. that it's a fancy person brand. Right? right. Oh, that's expensive. And so it, yeah. it does really seem like money. It's just a proxy for money in a really obvious conspicuous consumption way. And that kind of conspicuous consumption is universal. It's not new by any means. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my kind of point at the very end of the book is that it's boring. That, yeah. you know, it's not a particularly <laughs> interesting manipulation of symbols to say, look, I have a bigger house than yours. Because no one there requires no knowledge to decode. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, my example is if, you know, Drake has this giant house in Toronto, and if you took an impoverished child from, uh, you know, Kazakhstan and you put them in the house and said, is this a rich person or a poor person, they would know it's a rich person. And so if that's the only message that Drake's trying to get across, then it's not a particularly interesting piece of culture where come to Garson as, you know, culture that is very nuanced and it requires all these layers of meaning and understanding and and symbolic play and reference in order to understand what they're trying to achieve. It's just, you know, even if it's being used as a signal to say, I'm this and not that it's just a much more interesting and rich signal. And so, uh, uh, this is this is my very long-winded answer to say, you know, I, I do think fashion is, is is bigger than ever, but it's because it's just become obvious conspicuous consumption, not because people are much more sophisticated
0: about it. Right. What I find fascinating, so, uh, so this is, you know, what it signals is what you call a signal of low symbolic complexity, right? Meaning that you understand it immediately and that it if not most people, then the majority of people can understand it immediately. You don't have to labor at signaling your status. And uh, you also talk about in your book, there are uh, pretty much two types of status. There is economic status and there's cult, oh, this is, sorry, there is economic capital and there's cultural capital, right? And both bestow a certain status and we live in an age where absolutely 100% economic capital has won. Uh, mm-hmm. And and uh, I think actually hip hop is partly to blame. And I think we cannot underestimate uh, the kind of influence hip hop has had on that. But also I think... Economically, we live in an unprecedented time where so many people have been lifted out of poverty, you know, in America, in China, uh, in Eastern Europe, in Western Europe. Uh, and the aspirational consumption and conspicuous consumption has exploded also because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh. Would you say that's the case?
1: Yes. So, trying to figure out where to start here, but uh, look, economic capital as the way you signal status is universal. It requires no special knowledge and it's happened throughout history. And if you go to some sort of impoverished dictatorship anywhere in the world, you'll find that this is the primary mode of aesthetics, which is just that the rich people have stuff that the poor people can't have, and that's it. And it's not particularly interesting. When you get to a more uh, a society with more gradation, where you have middle class and you have, especially, a professional class, the professional classes in and the you know what's called the creative class of so people who work in in kind of art adjacent fields, their entire mode of existence is to understand information and symbols and to interpret it. And, you know, not only are they good at that and searching out new kind of information puzzles to solve, but they themselves are kind of manipulating the symbols. And so you get more cultural capital in the sense of people trying to outdo each other uh, through, I can appreciate this and better than you can. I can interpret this better than you can. I know more than you do. All that comes out of a certain kind of professional class existence, and without it, it just it doesn't naturally exist. And so, when you look at um, people who are new money, and it doesn't matter if they're in the United States, and it doesn't matter if they're in you know uh, other countries, they're all going to do the thing that new money does, which is to take the money that they earned and put it into obvious status signifiers as quickly as possible. And they do that for a couple of reasons. Number one, they don't know the sophisticated. Sta- status symbols mm-hmm. in because they haven't been in that world so they don't know in the, in the best definition of cultural capital by the way is the understanding the behavior of being in a high status world mm-hmm. so if you haven't been in that world you don't know the rules what you know is kind of the stereotypical outward looking uh you know what you saw on TV is what rich people do so they own big houses and fancy cars right. so you do all that um and also you know your taste yourself if you're from outside of that world is probably much more straightforward and not nuanced and also you want to impress the people that you grew up with who are not going to understand you know uh oh you drink natural wine wow that that must that means you must be fancy (laughs) now so they're not going to know that the subtle signifier but they're going to know if you show up in uh, a lamborghini that you must be doing well so there's all these you know reasons why new money tends to you know just buy fancy things, then if you look around the world at this, these emerging, you know, extractive economies and mafia people, you know, everyone who's kind of becoming rich in very unfair economies, they are increasingly descending on London and all these places to be part of those worlds because you can't get status at home and there's only so right. much status you can have in Serbia. So if you go to, you know, if you're rich in Serbia and you go to London, then you can be the rich Serbian. Um, and, uh, they are likely to, it can, you know, be new money and they're likely to also become the representative of these places. So, you know, in China, there may be small artisanal, you know, groups of people doing cool stuff, but they're not who's representative of the Chinese economy. The representative is the rich kids of Obiarchs who are, you know, crashing cars and paying people to go to prison for them and all that kind of, you know, nonsense. And so that becomes the dominant... You know, symbol of these cultures emerging and and coming online. And also, you know, if they want to play a part in the global economy, they have to learn the basic, you know, language and and grammar of how to signal on a global stage. And what they're going to learn is that it's, you know, all these big brands. Where I think hip hop. You know, and hip-hop has never is not always been materialistic. There's been a materialistic yeah. side of it. And there was a, you know, in the 90s in particular with De La Soul and Trap Called Quest, there was this, like, very anti-materialist side of hip-hop as well that kind of, you know, died off and got buried mm-hmm. uh, in the 90s. But, um, you know, hip-hop, as it's construed today, and again, when you read th- this book, Rap Capital, which I really recommend, you know, so many of the trap guys were street dealer hustler types who had amassed a pretty big fortune and then were kind of coerced into take your stories and put them on the mic and become rappers but you know the world that they're in you know is a very kind of um new money conspicuous consumption kind of world they have brought that to the 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 songs that are the most you know kind of paradigm defining songs of our time and so you don't really have a counterculture in the music world that's saying hey don't don't accept money as the most important thing um Mm -hmm. and so from i wouldn't blame it all on hip-hop because hip-hop did not create capitalism it's just kind of living under it but it's not it's not a um and not not say you were but you know it uh hip-hop is no longer a reaction against capitalism or or or, or, you know a let's do something else it's very much an embrace of it and and it's trappings and so everything is kind of pointing to economic capital from every corner as the most important thing you're supposed to Mm -hmm. care about and then in the book i get into a lot of detail of it's not necessarily only that cultural capital has been um devalued because of you know, people in the culture not paying attention to it, but also the internet just inherently is uh, detrimental to cultural capital having value.
0: Yeah, what I was trying to uh, stress—sorry if it did not come across—is that uh, you know, as you state in the book, also obviously we, you know, uh, we uh, gain want to gain status through emulation of our better. So, and what I'm trying to say, since hip hop has become. The most dominant form of pop music that I see a lot of people emulate uh, the values that hip hop, you know, artists espouse, and a lot of them seem to be, you know, like you said, basically like naming your possessions. Um, yeah, and,
1: I mean, and that's the thing, too, is if you listen to hip hop songs, you get a template for the brands you should buy, yeah, exactly. the alcohol you should drink, the cars you should drive. I mean, it, exactly. it, it it's like reading a Japanese fashion magazine from the 90s yeah, or something to yeah, so, and yeah. oh, supposed to be wearing this brand. Uh, whereas, you know, look, when you grew up, uh, I mean, and I don't want to I don't want to hype, you know, alternative music as being like the greatest thing ever, because I think musically it was quite limited in many ways, but you know, the values you were getting from it were very much anti-capitalist or, mm-hmm. you know, um, posing as anti-capitalist. You weren't getting posing, a long list yeah. of signifiers. Signifiers for here's the brands you need to buy or you got a lot of here's bands you need to listen to or here's other culture that we appreciate. Mm-hmm. Or um, I, I was I was living in a very conservative town in, in Florida and thinking about, you know, Sonic Youth has a song called Youth Against Fascism, which is cool because, hey, I don't like fascism. And and right. they had a line in there, I believe Anita Hill, uh, which at the time living in a world where it seemed like nobody believed Anita Hill and everybody believed Clarence Thomas in this, you know, famous um, debacle. Uh, it was, you know, empowering to hear somebody, you know, put forward this really kind of left... Uh, liberal yeah. idea in a song and so yeah. you know that th- th- those values were represented there and and to your point and you listen to hip-hop uh you'd have to listen really hard for some sort of anti-capitalist critique
0: yeah 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 it exists but it's rare yeah i mean if you yeah. feel if you, if you listen to someone like lupe fiasco you you probably hear that but it's it It's not that often, um so what what i'm but what I'm curious about, I did not mean to single hip hop out it's just because it's so obvious, Just <laughs> yeah. maybe because, yeah, this is the world i'm I'm in right now um uh, but emulation is the point that I was trying to make is that you know we emulate. Uh, people we consider high status in our cultural behavior and that includes fashion and that's one of the reasons I think why fashion has become fashion as clothing I mean um, and luxury clothing quote unquote um, that's become so important what you don't you do talk about it but you don't name it but um, tell me your view on aspirational consumption, because there is, there is so much of that. And I think that, um, you know, certainly when I came to America, you know, as a, as a poor immigrant, uh, aspirational consumptions for me was the thing, you know, I, I remember Mm -hmm. getting my first pair of Moschino jeans, like my first Dolce & Gabbana t-shirt, like my first, uh, Versace shirt. That was for me, these things were not just like, hey, I look cool, but mm-hmm. they were uh as symbols of aspiration. Like I am if going to get out of piracy. Even right. if I if even if I bought all of that stuff at Century 21, you know, which is for those who don't know, it's a big <laughs> like yep. of like like an outlet kind of it's basically what Ukes is now. So, but obviously, I try to hide it and signaling, you know, that I'm on my way out of poverty. And there's still, you know, so much of that. So, talk to me, like, about your view on inspirational consumption, and you know, and and how it signals status.
1: So to go back to, you have the status hierarchy. You have, you know, these perceptions of yourself as being higher middle lower and you look up at the people above you because you're trying to move up and you look at whatever they're doing as Well, if I can adopt those same symbols or own those same objects, maybe people will understand me as being part of that group. And, you know, that could be a rational calculation. It could be very unconscious. But our aspirations in general tend to be simply imitating the group one or two above us and saying, if I only lived like that person, I would be so much happier. And so if you are perceiving yourself to be low status and, you know, maybe you have good you know, objective data on this, that I am poor or, you know, I'm not being accepted, then, you know, because people want to not only move up to be better than everyone else, but they want to just move up to be treated with normal respect, um, which is really important. So if they want normal respect, they want to do things that will make them treated better. And so there's a lot of, you know, really direct pressure for them to imitate that group one above. And so your aspirations kind of get get to that. Um, You know, the other part of this is if you are deemed to be low status, um, you have to overcompensate. Mm hmm. And that's why it's like, you know, a middle-class kid who is secure in their middle-class status can dress normal because yeah. they don't have to impress or improve anybody but if you are you know and and I'm being really careful here to not just say you were low status because these things are all relative and it's a lot about your self-perception rather than because yeah, there is yeah. no master hierarchy in the world in which you actually are lower middle status but if you're perceiving yourself to be that way and you're quite self-conscious about it then you're going to overcompensate in order to kind of leapfrog up or to mm-hmm. to make sure that you're counterbalancing the parts of your yourself that are going to be perceived as as lower status and this is you know the reason also why things like racism and sexism have a lot of interplay into culture because you know what racism and sexism are ascribe status categories in the sense that they're saying the color of your skin determines your status and In Mm -hmm. liberal democratic society, that's not supposed to exist. It's supposed to be that everybody has an equal chance, it doesn't matter your immutable characteristics, you you can be born any shape, any color, you can have any sexual preference, none of that should be held against you when we're doing the status tabulations. The problem is that racism and sexism and, and homophobia and all these things exist. So, uh, you know, people get docked on these things that they didn't choose. And if they're feeling that they have to overcompensate for these categories, which again, shouldn't exist, but do, then you also get a distortion where people who feel like they're being, you know, discriminated against are going to overcompensate through trying to uh, aspire towards even higher forms of status symbols in order to counterbalance it. So uh, that is most, you know, I don't, I don't talk about that, I think, directly in the book, but you can follow the Mm -hmm. logic to get Mm -hmm. there Um, that... Uh, or I, I guess I, I, I mentioned it a little bit, which is that if you are already high status, your need to overcompensate is a lot less because yeah. people already yeah. have all these sig- signals to know your your you're high status. It's people who perceive themselves to be low status that have to uh, do do more and put more pressure on themselves to move Yeah, up yeah. Faster.
0: You know, I've, I've for the past few years I've wanted to write an article called and you know, I would call it something like you know, <clears throat> dressing like shit as a sign of privilege.
1: Yeah, uh. <laughs> I mean, I mean that, that's definitely true. And I mean, and I think Naomi Fry, Naomi Fry had this great article in The New Yorker, too, about these kind of um, smock, I forget what it's like, these really kind of not flattering dresses that were very big about five or six years ago on women. And it was like, this is a privilege that if you're already beautiful and skinny, you can wear whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. looks amazing where everyone else this looks terrible on. Um, so, you know, so much of understatement is is a signal that you don't have to signal at all, right. and that's i think and the, and the thing is you know this is the idea of counter signaling because what counter signaling is is not not signaling what counter signaling is is if everybody's signaling with money and the people with actual money signal with things that aren't money what they're trying to do is say if you're signaling with money in the first place you've already lost and so understatement mm-hmm. is a really powerful way of devaluing uh, strivers' signals to, to make people look like they're trying too hard.
0: Right, right. Um, two things I want to talk about. You know, I, first is the more immediate. I wonder if, uh, so whom we're trying to impress is really what matters here. And Mm -hmm. I wonder where we are in the cultural place today is that most people actually don't want to impress old money. You know what I mean? Because I I feel Mm -hmm. like they're no longer our heroes in a way. They're kind of in obscurity. You you know, you don't see them in the news uh, or anything like that. Um, So it's really a lot of it is about who you want to signal to and so whether we are in uh sort of youth subculture and you want to signal to like-minded people um or you know often with aspirational consumption actually we want to signal to the people from our own group i feel like and not from the group above we signal with the things we think like i'm thinking here like you know like english working class in stone island right like like what's commonly called football hooligans, although they weren't all that, mm-hmm. right? But they were all, they were pretty much working class. And there was signaling to their neighbors that they weren't going into like central London and, and be like, hey, I have an expensive jacket, even though I'm working class, Class, but I saved up for it. It was really to signal to others, of, you know, you, a lot of times you signal to people of your own Class and you're jealous also mm-hmm. of them. It's like to go back to Alan the Button when he said, eventually, you're not really jealous of Queen of England, right? Even though she's right. you'll never be as rich or as, famous, yeah. but she's not really in your orbit. Exactly. <laughs> like you're jealous of people who are in your orbit.
1: Yeah, because that's the people you get status from, right? You only get status from people who you know. And that could be. It's mostly your group, right? So, like, if your friends treat you with esteem and give you all these benefits, that's that's amazing. It could be your workplace. But it has to be a community you're grounded in or strangers in mm-hmm. that you walk into a restaurant, you don't want to be kicked out of that restaurant. Right. And so... Uh that's pretty much it, right? I mean, I, and I think the internet changes the equation, which is suddenly now you can signal to anyone around the world. And maybe yeah. you can get these virtual benefits of followers and likes, and then you can spin that into a business, et cetera. Et cetera. So it's changed uh, that a bit, but more or less, you're most interested in your immediate peer group and impressing them. And it could be that you're stealing from another aspirational group in order to say, hey, I have this thing that you don't in our group, right? Mm-hmm. And people are arbitraging that. But uh, but ultimately, the, yeah, the audience is the people around you who can give you status. We don't really care about what people think if they can't do anything for us. And, and maybe that's a little bit, it sounds cynical, but I think a lot of it's unconscious. Um,
0: mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, yeah no no I I agree um, before we get to social media because it's such a rich and relevant topic for this uh, I also I am curious do you ever think that we are um, in the middle of signifiers changing uh, signifiers themselves being changed into how they signal status what I mean by this is, you know, someone showed me a meme some months ago where it was, like, someone wearing Gucci T-shirt and it said, like, you know, poor person and then, like, someone wearing something, like, really minimal and understated. I don't know, like, all Celine or whatever, like, you know, rich person and, some, and then, like, Mark Zuckerberg in his, like, you know, yeah. Adidas, like, flip-flops in this like shitty horrible t-shirt like wealthy person and what I'm trying to say like I wonder if we're at a point where like a logo which has been for like you know logomania comes and goes right so and now we're in the midst of logomania again and I think partly it is because of well, it is because of culture, and partly it's because of social media. Probably because minimalism doesn't really translate well into postage stamp photo on your on your phone. But I feel like like logo doesn't really like a Gucci logo on a t shirt doesn't really signal wealth anymore to me. And I wrote in an, in an article recently uh, about New York that like. Like to me, a YSL bag, you know, that like basic YSL bag, it's like it's to me it signals petit bourgeois, not even a bourgeois anymore. To me, it signals like a petit bourgeois. Like, so where do you think we're at like with, with the whole like logomania thing?
1: Well, uh, you look the best book on this is Deluxe by Dana Thomas. I you know, I, and I think she pulled some punches in that book where she didn't want to get kind of exiled from the luxury industry forever, (laughs) but she really shows the degree which the luxury industry doesn't make luxury goods anymore. It can't, right. Right. It's just too big. It needs new markets. Um, You know, if you have a company that is hand making bags with craftsmen who have done it for, you know, multiple generations and you know that that is kind of where luxury comes from it comes from outfitting actual kind of aristocratic elites for their lifestyles with safari luggage and horse saddles and things like that right so today if you make a t-shirt that has a logo on it i mean that's it's just not a luxury good Mm -hmm. by that standard um and I mean, at the same time, I'm kind of contradicting myself because in the book, I define luxury goods as more or less they have to be status symbols. I mean, that's the only thing that they really are. If you have a, right. if you have a really beautiful crafts object that's very expensive and it doesn't mark status, it's not a luxury symbol, it ain't a luxury mm-hmm. good. It has it has to mark status. So if you have a T-shirt and it marks status, then I guess it's a luxury good, but there's none of the underlying value to it the way that in our heads it's supposed to to justify the price. And uh, no one ever no one rich has ever worn a gucci bright logo t-shirt right, right. i mean yeah, or yeah. J- jadore dior like you know there's no one in the history of the world who is actual rich person or actual elite who has worn one of these t-shirts so you know we're not dumb we're not no one looks at that and says oh this this is uh, a dior good, and therefore it must be really fancy and expensive, we know that these people are just, you know, striving and aspirational. Because, and and I do get into this in the book, and I think it's really useful for everyone's understanding, but status symbols have to have three things, or they don't really function and they're not very effective. And the first is they have to have what I call, we use this word cachet, again, ambiguously, and I want to really strictly define it, but cachet is a symbolic association to a high status group. So um, if aristocrats all do something that what they do has cachet, because if you see that, you will immediately think of that high status group. Mm. So that's that's the first thing. Things have to have cachet. And, you know, again, a a, a J'adore Dior T-shirt doesn't really have cachet because nobody fancies worn that that T-shirt. Maybe it has some because the the word Dior is in it. And Dior used to make dresses for fancy people. But I think, again, people want that dumb. The second is signaling costs. Every status symbol has to have a signaling cost, which is there has to be something that it shows you paid in. And it can be time. It can be money. It could be knowledge. But you have to have something in order to have even acquired that and and signaling costs themselves aren't enough to make a status symbol but they're really important for protecting it to make sure that everyone else doesn't buy one so if something is expensive and you have it uh it means that you have enough money to pay for it you know and pay for it easily the third is that things have to have an alibi which is they have to have a reason for owning it other than status marking so if you own a Ferrari and the license plate says like for status or something, then people will think it's really <laughs> lame. Um, you have to go around saying, oh, you know, I race sports cars on the weekend and I need practice or something. So you have to come up with some fake excuse why you own the thing. And fashion provides that always through either, you know, craftsmanship, like this bag is, is made in this, you know, really fancy way with these really fancy materials. And of course, that's kind of a lie 95% of the time now because it's just made in some anonymous factory uh, on a different continent. And then uh, the second is that taste itself so oh it's the cool thing now for men to wear skirts or whatever because Mm -hmm. you know that's it's just a taste thing so um so fashion always provides those alibis but if you don't have any all three of those it's not a particularly effective status symbol and i wrote something i think last year about nfts where i felt like nfts did not have a good alibi and Mm -hmm. they were too they didn't have very much cachet either because at some point yes like Justin Bieber and Madonna and Steph Curry had a Bored Ape, but in general, they weren't part of rich people's lifestyles. Uh, they weren't just, oh, I happen to have an NFT. It was like this very obvious speculative investment. Right. And, you know, when it when it doesn't have that kind of anchor in people's actual lives, it, it it's so much easier to collapse.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Makes total sense. I, I, I think I saw something today that justin Bieber's board abe is now worth seventy thousand dollars yeah in, right, for
1: down from 1.3 million from one or point whatever it was
0: <laughs> yeah As talk about can't can be more simple than that.
1: yeah and they been you know board abe did a really terrible job also by expanding too quickly they didn't follow the streetwear model at all people were comparing it to supreme but it was more like angry birds they were like we're gonna make a tv show and we're gonna have an album and right. it's like you know james jebbio with supreme played a really slow game yeah. and he made sure always at every step to keep it grounded in some sort of myth of community and back to the skateboarding Mm -hmm. kids. And, you know, I remember members of the Supreme staff like extorting me for 20 bucks in a, you know, New York bathroom in 2003 or whatever. That's who worked at Supreme, you know, people (laughs) who would, you know, corner people in bathrooms. So, uh, you know, that was not happening with NFTs. It was like grow as quickly as possible. Like no one had read the streetwear handbook at all. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. So do you think that the, the logo wearing masses will catch up soon and realize that actually we're not signaling wealth at all here? We just have been duped. Do you think that's an inevitable cycle, what I'm trying to say? Or-
1: I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's inevitable in that once it becomes too counterfeited or too widespread... Then yes, you see, like kind of a back, you know, it 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 fades, but something else will take its place. I think what sure. what I am not optimistic about is that people will say, "Oh, this fashion thing is just a rigged game." I'm not going to play it. Yeah. Oh yeah, no. That's they're just not- going to play. They're just going to wait. Yeah, yeah. They're just yeah, going to wait for the next move. move. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. No. So, just- but whether a Gucci logo logo T-shirt, I mean, at some point it's just too played out, and people will move on.
0: Yeah, and I I wonder if they will see like what i guess people like me are seeing we we were passing uh by canal street one day (laughs) with my wife and we were looking at all these like fakes and people buying fakes like fake chanel fake gucci and the way everything looked like my wife was like yeah this seems totally legit to me like it doesn't (laughs) like you know when the logo is the only signifier and so-called luxury fashion, like throughout all the pretenses at making quality, long-lasting, better-fitting uh, things. Like, yeah, the, the, why not go and buy the fake thing on the canal, uh, on Canal Street? <laughs> and, and, and another, and yep. we were like another time we were passing by Canal Street, and I overheard these two tourists. Like, yeah, we just saw the the real thing at the store, at the Gucci store, but we came here (laughs) and I thought, oh, this is, I wonder what that means for fashion. (laughs) If things like that happen.
1: Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, we live in a really crowded world uh, of really fast moving ideas and it's hard to get people's attention and logos Mm. serve that very well. Yeah. You know, it needs to be an immediate signifier to someone to say, okay, this person is important. So if you don't have, if people don't have a time to check out your. Uh, cuffs to see if the buttons open to see if it's a real tailored suit or not Mm -hmm. and you just have to impress them in 15 seconds through a logo then those logos become more powerful but again over time the logos become overly associated with non-high status people and therefore they lose their cachet and then it all kind of collapses but so we'll see
0: yeah um and Give me a take on social media and, of course, particularly Instagram, what role it has played uh, in our dismal pursuit of status.
1: So one thing I've been thinking about is the fact it used to be very difficult to see people's lives all the time, Mm -hmm. right? So if you wanted to see a celebrity, you had to buy People magazine or Us Weekly, or watch like a celebrity tabloid show, but otherwise you just didn't see what they were doing, what they looked like, their houses. And Instagram, and Instagram's kind of a proxy for all visual social media, but it's the most obvious one. But, you know, because of this social media where it's encouraging you to take constant photos and videos of your life, then and broadcast them to, you know, anyone who wants to see them, we suddenly see everybody all the time. So everybody not only can signal 24 hours a day, but does Mm -hmm. and also feels the requirement to do so. And, you know, especially with young people to refuse to be on social media is like to refuse to exist. So, uh, you have now where signaling is a rare thing or it's an in-person thing. It become a constant thing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think what that has done is, first of all, I think it has made status more important to our lives now, even though we don't talk about it that much. And it also devalues the act of signaling. And this is this is the part where I'm not, I think it's emerging and I don't quite, I don't th- quite think it's like the established thing that's ha- happened, but it is happening, which is if you told me, "Hey, I'm going to Florence. I'd be like, wow, that, that's really cool that you can go to Florence. But then if you go to Instagram, you see everybody is in Florence. Right. Um, you're suddenly like, well, all right, I guess this is the thing everybody does now. <laughs> and it's not that interesting. And so um, because everyone's signaling all the time their stuff, like stuff just isn't mm-hmm. that interesting. So I do think it's leading to a devaluing. Um, but it's it's constant and... Uh, overwhelming. And mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone's really succeeding from it. The the other thing that's quite interesting, though, with I, w- I guess I got on Instagram, I want to say about 2012 ish, and I heard someone at the time still describe it as the happiest place on the internet, because there was a time in which Facebook was the place you did all your signaling, and everyone mm-hmm. was criticizing Facebook. And people don't remember that like Facebook went through the kind of elite college kid circuit to drivers sure. who are showing off their lives to then your parents. And then once it became your parents, it kind of collapsed. Yeah. But um, the Instagram was like the first exodus of that, that group that got overwhelmed on Instagram uh, on Facebook, went, oh, went to Instagram. So Instagram was kind of more abstract photos. They were just like your friends, what they were up to. And then the next group showed up again and brought that kind of, you know, Potemkin live, like, look how incredible my life is and how amazing Mm -hmm. I am. And then from there, you know, what influence influences were, were you could hack the system by if I can create this really appealing version of myself that gets a lot of followers, I can actually turn that itself into a business. So there doesn't need to be any kind of core contribution to society. Just simply, I can get the benefit of status of all these followers. Mm -hmm. If I can hack the system and then turn that into its own kind of, you know, fame. And Daniel Borston, who's this historian, had this critique of uh, modern media. I think in this I think this book came out in the 70s. It's called The Image. But he, he's kind of cranky and, and you know, uh, very conservative. But his idea as a celebrity is someone who's famous for being famous. And, you know, that's right. obvious. But I think the same thing happened with influencers, which is that... Um, Yes, they're they're famous for being famous on these platforms, but it is an actual goal in itself. I think that's the thing that we. I don't mm-hmm. want to just say that's a it, it, say that line in a trite way. It's like they hacked the platform to figure out what is the way in in order to actually monetize it, and the way to monetize it is to become uh, a fancy person uh, and with all these followers. And what's clear though is that that sets the grammar then for the entire platform of how. Right it's supposed to be. And so I think even for people who are not using Instagram to s- signal how incredible their yeah. lives were, it's like some of that trickles down and you're just ending up doing videos and shorts like that are um, similar mm-hmm. to, uh, to, to that, that kind of influencer world. So it, social media got absolutely taken over by that, that striver group. Uh, And there are more strivers than there are kind of like, you know, erudite creative class Mm -hmm. people to start with. So you're going to get overwhelmed. But the the crazy thing to me is just the degree to which... You know, in previous eras, you had these segmented types of media where you had the New Yorker for people who read the New Yorker, and you had People magazine, and there wasn't a lot of overlap. Other than if you're at the dentist office and there's not, they don't have the New Yorker. You pick up People just to see, like, what are what are other people reading? Um, But what's insane is that you have all of us all together on Instagram. You have all of us all together on Snapchat or you know Facebook or you know all these platforms, and so you it's a much different experience. I don't think that can last. I think we're gonna to move towards a much more segmented form of social media where you're you're with your own people like it used yeah, to
0: be. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. And I think a lot of it will be it's just for me, it's I'm just like either I don't follow you or I mute you, like if I'm not interested, you know, so I try to really narrow it down to curate it where I don't spend as much Time in it. And I think that's where it's moving. Uh, but someone wrote recently, which I th- th- thought was great. It's like, because of Instagram, it used to be like fake it till you make it. And now like faking it is making it. <laughs> and I thought <laughs> this was, this was a really, this was a really great way to put it. Um, and uh, I don't know why I really think it's that to me why I think our culture and mass is so pathetic it's that it's 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 because it's so fake Uh, and I see so much of that in fashion to your earlier point um, is that you know it really matters to whom you signal I see so much of that at fashion shows like I see all like all these rich people who it's not enough for them to be rich and a lot of them are old money Right. But, but they have, but what I, what I alluded to is that our role models have changed. Right. And they come to those shows dressed really extravagantly because it's not for them. It's like you said, it's not enough for them to be a multimillionaire in Nashville. Right. Like they have to dress extravagantly and go to Paris because these are the people they're trying Mm -hmm. to impress. Yep. You know, with an added bonus, then of course, they're going to put a selfie up on Instagram or probably hire a professional photographer to right. photograph them, uh, you know, in a quote-unquote repetitious, yeah, like... Right way that that to me is crazy because you know as as much as i love being at fashion shows i'm like at the end of the day i am working here (laughs) You, you, you know what i mean and just really to see these people um and of course they're all on instagram and they all dress up for instagram like these people have nowhere to go in this clothes you know like I wear my designer clothes in the street. Like these people, they wear it around the house, and like and for them, Instagram is such an important outlet for their status signal yep. signaling. That's because right. without Instagram, they're nothing. They're not, even with their riches, yep. like they're still deeply unhappy because now, as I understand from the book, like they have no one to signal their status to.
1: Yeah, I mean, money buys you so much comfort, but then at some point you want esteem, and uh, you've got to convert it to status symbols to get that. Um, You know, the I've been also really interested in this. Article that Amanda Mull did in The Atlantic from about a month ago that's uh restaurant reservations are the new status symbol. And and what's interesting about that is that the internet for a while promised: hey, you can signal status from anywhere, you can be rich anywhere, you can be cultured anywhere. And now with you know being at the right Mm restaurants, uh, and I'm feeling in the last couple months much more that there's a new york scene and if you're not there and you're not eating yeah. at or whatever like you're not part of it and uh so now it's like la and new york are taking back a little bit this mm-hmm. idea of like you can be anywhere like no you have to be yeah. here and you have to be you know hanging around with these very specific people that's also inevitable and you know and again like you know my point uh, you know, the book was criticized a little bit for saying that there's one status hierarchy in society and that we all live in it. And I, I don't think there's a formal status hierarchy, mm-hmm. but I think that people have this perception of where they are and their group are because, and groups compete and groups try to change the criteria mm-hmm. in order for their groups to move up. So it makes sense that, you know, a bunch of hipsters in Uh, New York scenesters in downtown will try to shift things to say we're the most important group culturally at the moment. And if you don't show up at our restaurants and are part of us, then you're not that important. That's just inevitable, that kind of conflict. So, uh, but you know, you're right that someone from Nashville can show up in Paris these days and they can drop enough money to kind of get entry into this world, but they're still excluded from it. And the other, you know, the other one on this that I'm interested in is, TikTok stars are starting to go to the Met Gala. So it's like, okay, they've broken that barrier where you can be big on TikTok and you can go to the Met Gala. But they're like the lowest status people at the Met Gala, right? And, you know, if you're a really, if you're a really important celebrity uh, or you're, you know, you're Janelle Monae or you're Brad Pitt or whoever you are, they can take the hit of not being on social media. Mm -hmm. But they're still famous. And, you know, Drake and... Lady Gaga and these musicians too have transcended even needing to have hits anymore. I mean, what's the last Lady Gaga hit? It doesn't matter because Lady Gaga is a thing right. beyond yeah. music. And yeah. so all of these people have, have gone into this kind of pantheon of our celebrity overlords and they're going to stay there where, you know, you can strive your way into that world through social media, but none of the social media stars are so famous as to be immune to any social pressure. Like the minute that, they get knocked off from the YouTube rankings, then they're just gone.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the last thing I want to touch on is uh, one thing that uh, I would, I would like you to explain to me, I, cause I was a little bit uh, unclear. You seem to at, you know, later part of the book uh, to say that sort of, you know, this, Poptimism, optimism, the the idea of uh, like destruction of cultural hierarchy, um, acceptance of pop uh, is you know is a good thing. But at the end of the book, you also you seem to champion that no, we actually need advanced culture because it's just much more interesting, and it's the advanced culture that then get permeates popular culture, which makes the popular culture that's kind of worthwhile gives that sense of you know being worthwhile. And uh yeah, I, I also have these conversations that like, you know, I have this idea that you can make anything good. You know, like there there can be a fantastic pop song and there can be like a really shitty, you know, muzak kind of mm-hmm. song. Like there can be like the Lord of the Rings on the one side movies, and then there can be like the Hobbit movies, right? <laughs> so there's something yep. that's really fantastic and something that's really atrocious. So can you explain to me a bit, like you seem to champion in the end sort of a return to, you know, from like postmodernist values where like anything goes to more modernist values. No, that No, we actually do need sort of a complex uh you know, high symbolic complexity culture, it is more rewarding. Can you talk about that a bit?
1: Yes. Uh, And, you know, throughout the book, I try not to be judgmental. And even on poptimism, I argue the point of view of poptimism. I think it's easy to read that and think I'm ascribing to it, but I'm just trying to say this is what they're arguing. Um, And especially with cultural politics, too, which is to say, you know, uh, cultural politics can, from a leftist view, can accept capitalism as long as the money goes to the right people, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, I don't mm-hmm. I don't necessarily believe all those things, but I just try to lay out what the logic is behind those positions. But at the very end I had I, I kind of had to have some sort of point of view um, and and was trying to figure out what to me were the things I believe that uh, I think are pretty straightforward. and one is that status is bad. You know, I wrote an entire book about status, but I don't think having hierarchy in human society is good for humans. I think uh, living in a place where you have the most flat hierarchy as possible is probably better. And when material resources go towards the middle rather than the top, that's better. And when uh, you try to give some form of respect to as many people as possible, that's also very good. So um, that's on the status side. On the culture side, you know, ultimately, you know, I'm somebody who is uh, either cursed or blessed with too much understanding of how culture works. And so if some song comes out that uses a chord progression that I'm too familiar with, I just don't find that song interesting. Mm -hmm. Right. And so complexity is important for me personally, because. I just understand how this stuff works, and I want to be surprised because everybody right. wants the novelty of surprise and once you know all the tricks, you just want you know deeper tricks, so you need more interesting things. That being said, I understand the frustration with all cultural criticism only looking for that because most people don't care about that um, right most people just want a club banger. Or they want <laughs> yeah. to be entertained for two hours, at a, you know, at a at a theater. So that's fine. Like, and and what I, what I was trying to do, and why I'm so careful about this, is because I understand the, uh, I understand the complaint against cultural elitism, and I'm not trying to mm-hmm. just say, I'm trying to make an argument for cultural competence that isn't just going back to well we know better than you and therefore you should just put mm-hmm. up with it um and what i'm coming down to is that if you think about culture as an entire ecosystem that everyone in that ecosystem wants some form of change right mm-hmm. like they if you're a country music fan y- yes you're more conservative than maybe a hip-hop fan but you want you want country music to not sound so outdated you want it to sound up up to date you want it to uh feel like it's alive and and dynamic and it requires a refresh of innovations and they come from somewhere they don't just come from nowhere they come from hip hop they come from these other mediums and so you need some sort of dynamic engine in the cultural ecosystem and in general that comes from people on the very margins whether they're you know subcultural or whether they're cultural elites in terms of people or experts really tinkering with the conventions in order to offer new ideas. And then those ideas catching on because of status and kind of permeating through and then refreshing everything. So this system worked really well in the 20th century. So all these very, very difficult, uh, abstract academic avant-garde ideas of music and fashion and, and painting all have trickled down and they've made everything more interesting. And, um, you know so it's not to say that more complex culture in itself is better for everybody because i don't necessarily think that's true and i don't think most people would think that's true it's better for me mm-hmm. and so if you care about pleasing me we should have more complex culture but it, put that aside it's better for everyone because ultimately this com- that complexity gets simplified and it refreshes even the most dumb you know mass culture which is good for everybody so The the concrete example I'll give you I was thinking about is there's this new Drake 21 Savage song, uh, I think it's called Circle Loco, that just uh, just samples one more time by Daft Punk in the most like 14-year-old kid with garage band kind of way. Like there's no clever sampling. Mm -hmm. It's just they took the phrase, they slowed it down, they pitched it down to hip hop time. They added the most generic trap beat and then... They rap over it and the rapping's not that great. So it's like a pretty lazy song uh, where Drake kind of sings the one more time hook. Mm-hmm. And if someone at the same time had uploaded this video on Instagram that showed the visual of. The song "Face to Face" by Daft Punk from the same album as "One More Time," where they had taken these little vocal fragments from about seven different 1970 songs and then rearranged them to make the the main hook of "Face to Face," and you would not only do these things not sound like the original, but they've like they've clearly taken something out of this original material that sounds nothing like it. And then with something like One More Time, they've created this iconic piece of music that may use samples, but it sounds you know, different from the original. Then now people are sampling. But the the product of Drake sampling one more time in this really you know profoundly simplistic way is that no one will e- sample Drake. There's nothing left right. it's all parasitic on the original, and so the thing about crafts and and complexity is that you're adding something that is seminal in the sense of people will be inspired by it and it will make more stuff in the future, which is good for us when you do the dumb thing that's conventional it it may please people in the moment, but it will die, mm-hmm. and it will no one will be inspired by it and mm-hmm. so what's what's really important is just to encourage. Some sort of invention and experimentation that will, you know, bear fruit rather than just be a, a, an endpoint. And so much of our culture, especially with the algorithms, uh, you know, giving, uh, companies you know all this data of how to make things they're just all that data showing you is that people like endpoints they don't like experimentation which they don't but you need the experimentation because at some at some point the end of the line culture will get boring and people ready for a refresh so Mm uh you know this is something i want to think and write much more about and really advocate for it uh because it's you know, cultural criticism can be snobbish and elitist, and people tune it out. But I think if there is some sort of stated, clear benefit that everybody wins when you have some sort of mechanism in society that is pushing for complexity and is rewarding those people, then it's it's not just you know, in order to to make uh, me feel like I'm uh, just towering over you in my tastes, which is what the complaint is about. Uh, that kind right. of elitist criticism.
0: Yeah, and I feel like that complaint has really gone overboard with optimism because, I mean, (laughs) I've become this... uh, That's not what I aimed for, but I've become this inadvertent defender of elitism. And to me, it's just bizarre because I've always wanted to be in the room with people who are smarter than me. I've always wanted to be... In the room with even like when I played soccer, like I wanted to be on the pitch like with people who are better mm-hmm. than me, even though like it made me feel terrible <laughs> about how bad of a soccer player. Right. <laughs> but I but the point is I got better playing with them, right? And then yeah. I got better, you know, being around smart people. I it's like I found it more interesting, really, and 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 more rewarding. And I guess like my uh, sort of defense of so-called elitism is like, why is that a bad thing all of a sudden? You know, and and I think it's because like mass culture has won such an overwhelming victory that, uh, you know, and people say like, you know, what is the point of critics, et cetera, et cetera, which obviously, you know, is close to home for me. And I think like the purpose is, not to sort of defend, like you said, like not to be a snob, but to really say, no, There's this stuff is important. Like advanced mm-hmm. culture is important. Um, and that's why, and I think when you get away from that, that's why there is so much bullshit in, in art, in music, in fashion, in general, because people... Take that point of view, and then these very, there are these very concerted efforts from corporate America, frankly, from corporate capitalism, to capitalize on that. In the point I make, like no one's complaining about uh, athletes, right? <laughs> like this, this is the la- this is the last realm of culture where el- elitism is perfectly fine and it's perfectly demonstra- demonstra- demonstrable. Mm-hmm um and we all root for it
1: uh whereas because we've all agreed on what the rules are right I mean, correct. So the, the thing is if you go to a basketball game you know how it's gonna go you know what the you know what the um you know what the rules are and you're watching virtuosos mm-hmm. and people love virtuosity the problem with art is that it changes the rules and people don't want the ch- rules changed they're like i like marvel movies i want I want Marvel movies to be understood as the greatest movies because that's what I'm invested in. Don't change the formula, just give me more virtuosic performances mm-hmm. of the superheroes. That's all I'm asking for. But if you're like, "Oh, those are for children and actually it's this new art film that everybody should see that it's, you know, <laughs> that's really important," then it, you know, it does pull the rug from out from under them. But you know, that's that's a status move on their part, right? Like for for Marvel fans to try to establish the importance of Marvel movies, that is not this you know uh, isolated position they're trying to you know devalue art film and you know uh, you know increase the value of that because if we live in a world in which Marvel's, the marvel cinematic universe is the greatest filmmaking of all time then they win and we lose right uh in in multiple ways and so um it it is a struggle over that it's just the degree to which there's been a capitulation exactly. among former elites. That's the thing exactly. that surprises me. It's it's not a surprise to me that that the masses are saying we love mass culture <laughs> and elitist culture is wrong. Like you can go back to, or, to all sorts of uh you know, books in the 20th century that 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 worry about that kind of thing. That's fine. That's expected. The difference is the degree to which critics uh have have accepted that position and if you go to pitchfork in particular pitchfork in 20 years has gone from something that was you know hilariously snobbish to now like hey the new lord single's pretty cool and doesn't even mention the fact that it's like a complete ripoff of either george michael um freedom or primal scream right so you know, it just said, hey, that's a cool song. Isn't isn't music fun? And so if everything is just being judged on if it's fun and entertaining or does it have social value in the sense of, you know, it's on the radio, therefore we have to talk about it, then it's, it, it's erasing one of the points of cultural criticism, which was to champion what the market would not champion. And so there's got to be right. some sort of countervailing force. Now, uh, it doesn't have to necessarily just be like it's all on pitchfork to save music, but... Just the degree to which this has been so demonized that people don't want to to be that person that advocates
0: for the difficult. I think that's what's fascinating to me. Exactly. Yeah. That also, it's it's not fascinating. I find it troubling. So at this point, I'm like, you know, I wear my alleged elitism as sort of almost like a, you know, badge of pride. Like it's a point of pride. I'm like, yeah,
1: I am. But but that elitism. I mean, I want to be careful because elitism makes it sound like, well, you know, in the critique where I think where I think this optimism comes from is is understanding in a po- post Bordeaux world that, yes, cultural capital and appreciation of high art is uh, associated and uh, correlated with more capital, right? So rich people tend to like more abstract art, so therefore there's something about abstract art that's suspicious. And I understand where that comes from, and Mm. and I'm sympathetic to to being skeptical about cultural elitism as just another form of discrimination. But what gets lost in there is that there's something else going on. It's not simply just a marker. It's that symbolic Mm -hmm. manipulation itself is something that's really important for human civilization. And so if you had a structure that was status based that was you know helping us uh reward these artists who are making contributions wonderful if we've dismantled that system because the art world has decided that partnering with luxury is better and luxury brands need artists they can easily kind of move and you use their logos and put them you know so like yayoi kusama is great for the art world because they can just put dots Mm
0: -hmm. on everything Mm -hmm. right
1: jeff Koons (laughs) is amazing is amazing for the art world because they can just be like well jeff Koons. hey it's you know some jeff coonsian thing so uh there's a really great book coming out i think next spring by natasha diggin i think is diggin is, is her name um she's a professor at one of the um either, either fit or parsons and i apologize for not knowing which uh or maybe not either but her book is just shows the degree to which art uh and luxury worlds are just completely combined to a degree mm-hmm. where there's really no difference between them and if you think about that and you think about who's pulling the strings well of course they're not going to want art that actually disrupts the, you know, commerce. Sure. It, it has to follow the rules of commerce. So if the art world's not doing it and critics aren't doing it, no one's doing it. And no one's going to be, you know, emphasizing cultural complexity because it's inconvenient for everybody. Yeah, uh, but exactly. cultural complexity is a good in its own right. And, and that's, that's my position uh and i'm happy to defend it more but there does need you know if you're interested in somebody who wants to preserve cultural complexity you need to understand it is not a given that you have to fight for it you have to have some mechanism that rewards it
0: yeah no i couldn't agree more and to bring it back to fashion i hope we will see that in fashion too you know i want back the glory days of the late 90s early 2000s where there was a fashion avant-garde where there were more complex and interesting things. And I hope we go back to that. you know, in culture in general and in fashion too, because yeah, they're important and necessary. Well, on that note, thank you, David. I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, The book is called Status and Culture, How Our Desire for Social Rank Creates Taste, Identity, Art, Fashion, and Constant Change. There is a lot of, food for thought in there and i think anyone who is interested in culture um should read it and uh yeah thanks a lot dave
1: thank you so much it's great catching up
0: you've been listening to the styles like us podcast hosted by eugene rapkin produced by patrick laduk intro and outro music by wesley Isolt of cold cave Please support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash style Thank you for listening.